Destination Eat Drink is up next. But first, listen to this great other show on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. <clears throat> A lot of anchors do that. <clears throat> Are you ready? Ah, oh, boy. Okay, here we go. Three, two, one. Hi, I'm Howard Sudbury. And I'm Steve Baskerville. That Let's do good. it again. What? That was good. Okay, you ready? Yeah. Hi, I'm Howard Sudbury. And I'm Steve Baskerville. Back to you on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Great talk radio isn't dead. It just moved to a better place. Radiomisfits.com. I need an agent. Beignets with a Senegalese flair, a bunny dish with no rabbits, and the best drink to keep away the mosquitoes. This week, we're in Cape Town, South Africa. Traveling the world to bring you delicious dishes, tasty beverages, and interesting experiences. This is the Destination Eat Drink Podcast on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. I'm Brent Peterson, host of Destination Eat Drink, the travel podcast for foodies. Each week, we visit a different foodie city, try the best dishes and drinks there, and while we're at it, a few fun things to do. This week, we're in Cape Town, South Africa, to enjoy their world-renowned local wine and something called coffee tuba. But before we get to Cape Town, don't forget to subscribe to Destination Eat Drink. That way, you'll automatically get the podcast downloaded to your phone, tablet, or computer. You can subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, RadioMisfits.com, all the regular podcast places. I've also archived each episode at DestinationEatDrink.com. Just click on Podcast. Cape Town is always popping up on lists of the world's best foodie cities, so I wanted to find out what makes it so special, and I reached out to Elsha Erasmus, a food tour guide in Cape Town. Elsha grew up on a farm in South Africa and worked and traveled all over the world, but returned several years ago to her home country to start Cape Town Culinary Tours. Their tours take visitors to places not often seen by visitors and delve into the cuisine of Cape Town's many cultures, including the Cape Malay and African cultures like the Zulu. So let's find out about bunny chow and South African samosas with Elsha Erasmus. And be sure to listen to the end of the podcast for a special discount offer from Cape Town Culinary Tours. Destination Eat Drink. Elsha, you run uh, Cape Town Culinary Tours and... Cape Town is just such a fascinating place for me because I've never been there, but I have friends who have been there. So it seems like an exciting and vibrant and really big city. Oh, yeah. How do we how do we wrap our minds around visiting a place as big as Cape Town that's so far away from most of us in North America? Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, it is far. Definitely. We um, discovered that from guests flying all the way from Minneapolis the other day. And they just kind of explained their journey. And they were like, but one thing their aim was get to Cape Town. Uh, their friends have been here. And we're very privileged to have a bunch of tourists, not just just comes once, they come twice. And then you kind of get to meet and greet uh, people of the past. Oh, it's incredible. We've had an amazing journey. Cape Town is very special, not just because it sits right at the point of Africa, um, it has its own culture, a diverse structure that happens here. It's, it's really home to many 
Um, even people that comes from abroad, we always say you don't visit Cape Town just once. <laughs> um, you tend to either stay here forever or, you know, you definitely will come back. Uh, the culture of living here for me was, I think, the first most breathtaking thing. Um, you can walk down the street, enter a bar or supermarket or um, even just join a new church and every, everyone is very welcoming. That's one thing you would definitely see right straight off the bat when you get here. People are extremely open, to, very approachable, which makes it so much more easy to visit. I, I think looking at other countries, we don't have language barriers. Most of the people here speaks English. So as soon as you land here, you're able to communicate, which I think is very important for any traveler. So there's that sense of comfort. Um, it's beautiful. <laughs> I'm sure everybody sees the pictures. I mean, we've got Table Mountain. It's one of the wonders of the world. It is, it is an absolute wonder, not just to look at, but to stand on top, uh, look down on 12 Apostles, which is right next to our coastline. Um, looking down at Clifton Camps Bay, it is it is absolutely beautiful. Oh, also, that other what is that Black Mirror? Not everybody's a fan of it. It's a series. Oh that yeah, was on Netflix, for a while. Uh, Black Mirror show. Yeah. Yeah. So some of that was actually shot where I'm speaking about there, the the Camps Bay area. Oh, it was breathtaking. But it was it made us all jump when we saw our <laughs> uh, you know our city. <laughs> I recognize <laughs> <this> that. International. <laughs> It was, oh, it was beautiful. And, you know, it's, so it's, it's really just, there's something for everyone from family to, um, you know, young students to your older, more cultural driven, uh, history driven, uh, or food for our matter of fact. Um, there is something for everyone, which makes it fantastic. Before we start talking about the food, Elsha, you mentioned the natural mm -hmm. beauty of Cape Town. If if I'm coming in to visit, what would be the best way for my for me to experience that natural beauty of Cape Town? You know what? I we get a lot of people because we run the tours as well. We get a lot of people saying, "Listen, I don't want to fall in the the tourism trap and kind of get eaten up by the tour agents and stuff like that." What we've also noticed is a lot of our travel agents in South Africa, you know, they don't mark up their price like people think they overcharge. Um, I have so much faith in uh, many of our travel agents that represents us um, because we need people to get here as much as people want to get here because tourism is growing definitely Cape Town as a city but South Africa in a whole um, so for me it's research uh, and be careful what you research a lot of people read um, many articles on South Africa in general not just Cape Town and they kind of not just put off but they're hesitant um, to go to certain areas, go to certain places. I would ask questions. I, when I travel, I ask questions. A lot of our travel agents says the first thing people ask, number one, is safety. You know, well, how, well, how do we kind of move around all the, the news and kind of see what we see? Yeah, I think definitely talk to someone that is either local, get in contact. Many tour operators will be happy to answer questions. You mentioned safety, Elsha. How do you answer the safety mm. question? Because, you know, we're here in North America and we hear news and I'm always very skeptical when I see reports on the news because whenever I travel somewhere, it doesn't matter where it is. It, it could be anywhere. Yeah. People will always say, oh, aren't you scared to go there? You know, because of some news story yeah. they heard. I mean, we went to Croatia in 2011, I think it was. The war had been mm -hmm. over for, you know, over a decade. Yeah. <laughs> and people are like, oh, isn't there a war going on there? I'm like, no, that oh, was man. years, years oh, ago. Wow. So I put it to you, Elsha. How do you answer when people mm -hmm. say, oh, you're going to South Africa? What about the safety? Yeah, I think I would 
if I did not live in South Africa, that would also be my main concern. The funny thing is that we hear, yes, we know the crime happens around us and we're very aware of it, but we don't see it nearly as much in our news and newspapers as I would say international news does, because it, it's kind of like when it happens here, you guys hear about it first. For us, I don't want to use the word normal because that's quite scary um, to kind of hear. But a lot of these crimes are happening in areas that are not just rural. Um, it is uh, kind of managed or run by a lot of gangs. And you can that you'll read everywhere all over the, um, the Internet. But that's not areas where you'll particularly be going as a tourist um, uh, unless you're like a very adventurous, <laughs> adrenaline-seeking tourist. Uh, but, I mean, you'll be in the city center. You'll be going to Boulder's Beach. Um, you'll be going to Clifton. You're going to wine country, areas that are protected not just by the government but by the local people. I mean, we look after what we have as much as possible. It's just unfortunate some areas we can get in there. Like even as a local, if you would want to reach out and assist, it is very, very difficult. So yes, we have these areas that a massive, not just stereotype has been built around, uh, but stories. And one person talks and kind of adjusts the story just a little bit, make it a little bit worse. or And then the next person talks and he adds a little bit more. So I think it's dangerous to listen to people or the news because it might just be exactly what they want the world to see in here. So that's why I also say to rather ask people, ask questions to the local tour operators. They will tell you where to go and definitely where not to go. That's good advice. Elsha, let's talk food because that's why we're here, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> the oh, yeah. food of Cape Town. <laughs> if I go on a Cape Town culinary tour, what are some of the dishes that I would be experiencing and enjoying? And um, tell me a little bit about that. Oh, goodness. If you if, if you come to South Africa, I need to take you on both the tours. Right now, we've got two, um, but they're very flexible, like any other food tour. If, any, if listeners has been on a food tour, they kind of mold around your needs and what you want. But there are two set tours. We wish we could put it in one day because it will be the perfect example of uh, not just the cosmopolitan history and food, but also um, uh, the historic uh, part of our food and how it's influenced our culinary scene all over the years. And we, we never really noticed it. Um, we have got a very young history, like many parts of America, um, like Singapore, like Australia, but it's extremely dense. Um, so we kind of decided not to go the, the normal fancy way where you get all the, you know, top five restaurants in Cape Town onto this one food where we wanted to actually go where I went for lunch, where my friends, my next door neighbor would go to lunch. And why are we going there? Tourists aren't going to those places. So we were like, okay, let's try and backtrack our steps a little bit, just find the unique spots and why do we go there? Lots of it is local food, like my grandmother. I know everybody says that, but it usually is. Uh, we talk about Bagwiti, um, which came back all the way from the 1700s Dutch cookbook. We talk about bunny child that influenced our apartheid era drastically. Uh, we talk about curry, and then people see Indian curry. It's not that at all. It's uh, Cape Malay or uh, Malaysian curry, so it's very Mediterranean. And funny thing is about 80% of our food is not from here. It's it's from all over the world. It's all our different influences. It's anything from local Zulu, Corsa, um, Koi, San, Afrikaans, uh, British, 
Dutch, French, German. It is all those interlinked into each other. Portuguese, let me not forget them. Um, <laughs> so it's all these, you know, little links that has been placed together. And we, we found spots that you wouldn't necessarily find as a tourist. And we bring them to the plate. So it's, you know, the little back corners, the back alleys. So let's talk about some of those dishes that you mentioned. Uh, mm. but Bunny chow. Uh, a great name, first of all. <laughs> Love the name. But what, what is bunny chow? Okay. First off, it's nothing to do with bunnies. Right. Every time someone comes on the tour, they're like, I, I'm a very uh, adventurous person, but bunny is the last thing I'm going to eat. And I'm like, no, no, no. So bunny is, there's actually no bunny meat inside. Um, there is many different histories to this particular dish. And that actually doesn't come from Cape Town. That comes from Durban. Um, Durban had a tribe, uh, Indian tribe settled there, uh, which was not part of the slave trade. They went there free willingly and they were known as the Bonnier. That was the tribe's name, Bonnier tribe. Um, and, you know, a lot of the Mediterranean countries would refer to food as chow. And um, as this kind of, it was a very, um, what do you call it? Mediterranean curry flavor that came through, but also Indian Sri Lankan curry coming through. So that became very popular in uh, Durban. But then with our apartheid era, you were not allowed to have cutlery. And that was taken from you as oh. a person of color. And they had to come up with dishes for themselves, not just, I wouldn't just say just the apartheid era. It was also considered the non-wealthy. Um, you wouldn't have the luxury of cutlery, etc. So they would take a loaf of bread hollow it up, uh, out, stuff it with lamb, beef, vegetable curry, because also we're very vegetarian. We're very, um, you know, used to not having meat because it took us about 300 years to get to a point where everybody could just walk to a supermarket and buy meat, you know. So, you know, you would stuff this loaf of bread um, with lamb, beef, curry, uh, vegetable curry, and then you put the lid back on top, take a little paper bag or plastic bag, just wrap it in there so it keeps it all together and that's how you would transport it and then when you're ready you would open it up and you would eat it with your hands and then that's where the name came about we call food chow also you eat with your hands like a bunny and then <laughs> bunny chow from the bonnier tribe so <laughs> it was a little bit fitting so where would we get bunny chow is it a street food do you get it in restaurants where, where do you get bunny chow and, and where's your favorite bunny chow place elsha um ooh. That's that's a difficult one, Brent. Like if you go to Durban, there's like it will be it will be street food. It will literally be like we call them vendors or um, like a tuck shop next to the road. They usually make the best ones. You don't ask where the ingredients is from because you're not gonna want to know. <laughs> oh, <Jesus>. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but then in Cape Town, there is a few places like oh Eastern Food Bazaar for a very good example is one of on one of our tours. Um, it is literally. They started with two stalls, so Sri Lankan and Turkish, Cape Malayan food, and then progressed to 21 of those. And then you walk through this tunnel, and there's all these open fires, and um, oh, it just smells everywhere you go, and Mediterranean music playing, and it's, it's street food. It is literally the locals go there, you buy in bulk, go freeze it at home, it's what you eat for the whole week. And it's inexpensive because they've got all this bulk for all the people passing through. So that here for us at Eastern Food Bazaar would be definitely 
a street food. You can get it at another place, which we have another dish I would like to tell you about, but it's called Miriam's Kitchen. Miriam's Kitchen is in a family. They've been around for 28 years, uh, maybe 29 this year now, if I'm not mistaken. And their family is just, oh, they make anything from our Cape Malayne rotis to our uh, bunny chows to our Gatsby sandwiches, um, to our little milk tarts. Oh, anything. You can just go in there and everything will be right there for you. At Miriam's Kitchen. It sounds great. Miriam's It's fantastic. <laughs> you mentioned the Cape Malay community. And as I was preparing for this conversation, I was reading about this. And I had no idea that people from Malaysia were brought to South Africa originally as slaves. Mm-hmm. I just assumed yes. that it was strictly the African slave trade. Mm-hmm. Talk about yeah. how how the Malaysian people came to Cape Town, but also talk about the Cape mm-hmm. Malay community and some of the ways that we can experience their culture when we come to visit Cape Town. Oh, yeah. So um, something that we very, feel very strongly about on the tours as well is that many of our cultures that was brought into uh, not just South Africa, but in the point of entry in Cape Town does not get a lot of recognition. Um, we talk about our first slaves uh, were brought in from Angola, uh, which was part of the VOC, which was the Dutch East Indian Trade Company. So when they made their way from Europe, they, you know, stopped by Angola. We got slaves there. Later on, we also had Senegalese influence, which was some of our first French influence into South Africa, which not a lot of people know. They made their way down to Cape Town. That became between 1652, 1654, became a freshwater supply stop here in Cape Town um, for the, the Dutch and the British to kind of pass by on the way to um, Madagascar, India, Sri Lanka to go get spice and stuff like that. Um, but then also the roots expanded um, as the VOC also became bigger and more popular. Demand for um, tea, saffron, pepper was one of the highest, most expensive spices at the time. And then also things like lentils and uh, what's the other one? Chickpeas. You know, that actually came from our eastern borders. So looking at, uh, once again, Madagascar, uh, Tanzania's water, uh, ocean coasts. Um, so a lot of these flavors were brought in through the VOC. And then also Indonesia and Malaysia. Um, they were brought in mainly slaves, as along with a lot of our Indian slaves, Sri Lankan slaves, people from Madagascar were brought to Cape Town and then housed here um, under rural circumstances and then forced to make this their home. Uh, you were stripped from any identity. So if your name was Erasmus. <laughs> it probably would, if you were here, brought in by the month of February, you'll now be um, Alsha February. So you were stripped from any identity you oh. had, and wow. Cape Town cre- created its own culture, which now is known as the Cape Malayan people, um, the Cape Colored people. That's also two very different things when you speak to people about it. Um, very proud of both names. I know in some parts of the world, um, talking about something like a mixed race or Cape Malayan or Cape Colored might be offensive. In Cape Town, if you, or South Africa, if you mix those two around, you will be offending that race. Um, so it's a very particular group of people, a very particular now that a, a DNA that has been formed here in Cape Town. And it's still very much noticeable um, throughout. I'm sure you know the, the Boer Corp. Ugh. The beautiful, colorful houses. Everybody always wears the colorful houses. It's, right, right. It's stunning. Workor basically means above the cape. 
because the rich and the more uh, fortunate lived closer to the water. And that would have meant in Afrikaans, it says the Waterkant, or which we now know as the foreshore waterfront. Um, and the slaves had to live above the hill, on the hill, because if anything had to happen, you know, the rich would be able to get away as quickly as possible. And then the slaves had to wait. Oh, wow. That's their escape route on the sea. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> Not to overcrowd the ships and like that. So, yeah, this areas, you know, being, you know, the Cape Quarter, the District 6 area, the Boerkop area um, was kind of different quarters in town created through the slave trade um, with these particular people in them. And then we created our own little culture. What would be a typical Cape Malay dish that we could enjoy? Sure. Like this is a thing with suburbs. Uh, one thing I love Cape Malayan food. I also love Indian food and there's a very fine border between them. And then also with the suburbs, like some people have lived, uh, being Cape Malayan, uh, for, you know, very, very long in the outskirts of Cape Town. And they consider themselves, of course, the, the most Cape Malayan. Then you come to Cape Town city center and you go to the Boerkop. We've got a lady there called Fatima. If you, you just search Cape Malayan food in Cape Town, she pops up on Google. Wonderful woman cooking in her home in Boerkop. She takes you in. She makes you, well, she shows you how to make the Cape Malayan curries. This could be with, you know, with rotis, with chapati. It's, it sounds very Indian, but it is not. It's got a very particular flavor. We use a lot of cardamom. We use a lot of coliander. Um, your curry flavors are there still, but we love things like ginger, uh, garlic, onions, stews, broths, um, with your rice, uh, with pup. Pup is like a palenta. Um, you put that for breakfast, you put it for lunch, you put it for dinner. You have anything from, dessert that's like malfa pudding but that's also very much of afrikaans but it's definitely very intertwined into our cape malayan culture um you have kuk sisters which people forget because they only read about kuk sisters kuk sisters is the very dutch afrikaans sweet weaved pastry and then the kuk sister is the cape malayan one which is almost like a, a puff donut with spiced chai tea flavor in it with condensed milk and coconut sprinkled all over it. It is fantastic. You have to get it fresh. Oh, it's good. It is very good. So there's there's a lot of diversity when it comes to the Cape Malayan food. They use a lot of samosas. I mean, samosas are part of many cultures over the world, but, you know, most of our Cape Malayan food is vegetarian. Um, So we've had vegetarian food for centuries, you know. We, We know how to cook with it. We didn't have a lot of ingredients um so we kind of had to use what we had available to us. So if we get a if we get a samosa in a Cape Malay neighborhood that would be it would be Malaysian in origin not Indian. Not Indian. Yeah. Definitely. And also our spices um looking almost Vietnamese Taiwanese. It's a lot of peanut butter. It's a lot of sesame seeds. It's a lot of bit of chili spice on top. So it almost goes a lot more back to um, Asian influence than your Indian influence. Uh, they both come together because they're very both uh, relevant to each dish. We use all the same ingredients, just enhancing each other. So that's one thing about us. Not one singular ingredient overpowers a dish. It it enhances. Everything comes together. You'll taste every single thing in every bite. It's 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 lovely. It's amazing. Elsha, what about the dish uh, bobo tie? Is that how you pronounce it? 
Yeah, but very good. You're very close. Eh? Um, so, uh, well, we get a lot of people. It could be Babuti, it could be Babuti, it could be Bob's tea, or but it's yeah. So Babuti um, is probably one of our oldest savory dishes in South Africa. It did first come to the port of Cape Town um, and first found in a 1700s Dutch cookbook, the dish that we work from. But then we changed it completely. When we look at, once again, the slave trade in South Africa, uh, we had families brought in. You know, a lot of people were exiled here, um, uh, families being separated. Uh, we had a lot of kids. So the dish originally was a bit spicy. So Cape Town went and changed it. You know, we would put uh, banana, banana inside. We would put... Um, oh. Uh, coconut shavings inside this dish, raisins. You can make it with instead of egg on top because it looks like a souffle. Um, it's basically a mixture of onions and grounded beef with this very uh, Cape Malayan spice inside. And then you put an egg on top to make it set. And where would be a great place to uh, get this dish in Cape Town? Well, if you could get a local home to make it for you, Babuti <laughs> is the best that way. Like, you know, every, any grandmother, it Go is to grandma's um, house. the dish that is a must, right? That's it. Yeah. Oh, come to my house. Um, but uh, at the moment, we have a place on my essentials tour, which is called the Cafe Charles. Um, not just do I love the Babuti, they, they're also trying to support the local community. So free of artificial colorants. They don't uh, have a lot – well, they try not to get any meat that is full of hormones. Um, and then, once again, supporting the local communities so and smaller farms, smaller produce, from tomatoes to lettuce, uh, herbs, anything. Um, and then they make witty because Sean the chef is um, Cape Malane. So he knows the spices and the flavors um, like the back of his hand. Uh, so definitely, Cafe Charles, if you visit here, you must go there. You'll probably see me there at dinner time as well. <laughs> well, they make stuff like Koiki Kors as well. I don't know if you've read up about that, friend. No, tell me about it. Oh, Koiki Kors is like a witch cauldron's pot. It's huge. Oh. It's usually somewhere outside in a fire. It's a massive cast iron pot um, that they place on the fire and they would like start with, you know, the herbs, the, the onions, the garlic in this big pot with whatever meat you want. So like beef shin mints or uh, ostrich uh, bones, put it in the pots with the vegetables of choice. And then you kind of add a broth and you just let it simmer for anything from four to six hours. Uh, right when it's almost done, you would add, add like pieces of dough on top, like dumplings inside. That is very, very popular. You could also add a bit of Cape Malane curry. So that could be, um, then it becomes Cape Malane. But other than that, it's just known as poiki course and every culture from, you know, oh, the Zulu community, the Khorasan, uh, uh, Afrikaans, everybody makes this. It's like, Everybody knows what a poiki is. It's delicious. You talked about the Zulu community, Elsha. What kinds of dishes would we see on menus that would be typical of the Zulu community? Because this seems very exotic mm -hmm. to us. Um, what would the dishes be? What would be involved with them? What kind of ingredients? Mm. So, well, this is where it gets fun because you can choose either what you want to go a little bit more towards 
um, you know, the side of bugs. So you can do like, uh, okay. what is that? The, the worm that you see when Simba on the Lion King, he eats it and he says, Nkuna Matara. Um, that, that worm being a Mukpami worm is very typical in not just our Zulu community, but the, uh, uh Corsa community and many others. I mean, we've got 11 official languages. Um, the worm is known to many, uh, but also other bugs, but that's, not used in everyday cooking. That's where people think, oh, I don't want to go to South Africa because what am I going to eat? Um, when we look at uh, the very diverse African cultures, as it developed all the way from the borders of South Africa, a lot of foraging happened. So they're also used to hunting, uh, hunting and gatherers. So anything from, you know, planting corn to wait for your cow to grow up uh, to a stage where you can have another calf and produce milk and then becomes meat uh, to enjoy in the household. But gradually it grew, but the dish has always stayed the same. So it's a lot of broths and stews and meat and game. We love kudu, we love springbok, um, but, oh, anything that you can really see on a safari. We don't eat those though. Um, they jump around and look very pretty, but they're almost raised as cattle <laughs> on other farms. So that you can expect game, definitely. On a African table, you will get some some kind of game meat or main food or protein is meat in South Africa, especially when it comes to our African cultures. Are there any restaurants in Cape Town dedicated to Zulu cuisine? Well, you won't just find like Zulu or Kosa uh, or Kwe or San or anything, like, just strictly that. There'll be maybe a little bit of diversity. You can go to restaurants like Gold Restaurant, it's very popular, but it's, but it's also that you get the sense of the drumming, African drumming gets done at the restaurants. Your face get painted in the traditional painting. You can go to Marco's restaurant in Cape Town. Um, there is also, oh, but now it's literally slipped my mind. There is quite a few of them, but they will have a diversity of um, our local African cultures in them. And then they love to put up a show. Like, this is the fun part. You go, they sing, they dance, um, they're performers. They, they're absolutely built for dancing. It's People are beautiful um, and the food is delicious. Yeah. So there's, there's definitely a handful of restaurants in Cape Town. I love gold because it's really theatrical. And then Marco's kitchen is great. I'm trying to, Oh, African cafe. African cafe is really good. It's a little bit more, a little fancier side when it comes to our African cuisine, but it is oh, it's lovely. Sounds like a lot of fun. Um, one last it thing is. about <laughs> the food, uh, Elsha is mm. you mentioned a French influence in South Africa coming from Senegal. Mm -hmm. What would that be like? So looking at our Senegalese-French uh, relationship, it is still very Senegalese when it comes to the culinary side. Uh, they do things like beignet or uh, uh, beignet, which is that little, um, yeah, the little donuts donut. yeah. that you get. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but they put a little bit extra like lime, lemon zest and uh, peanuts inside. So they change it a little bit. Sounds Food, good. it's delicious. <laughs> it's great um, and then also like uh, tebe which is like a rice spiced rice also once again with vegetables seasonal vegetables we love saying that word we love eggplant we love carrots we love potatoes um, all the stuff that the doctor says don't have too much from and then meat like a lot of meat but more spicy they love peanut butter as well so you see our kind of our eastern side and our west side are quite similar because they have these spicy peanut butters and incredible flavor to enhance what they're having. Um, also coffee. I mean, they have a strong connection. I know same as in France, strong connection to coffee. 
Um, there they bring something special though. It's coffee tuba, which is a juniper pepper that they actually grind up with the dark roasted coffee and they call it coffee tuba because it was originated out of the second largest city in Senegal, which is tuba. Um, but it's extraordinary. It's a spicy, it's like spiced chai tea, but it's spicy coffee. It's very delicious. So, and then they have a lot of French flair. They just have the, the finer details on their food. So, you know, adding a nice little leaf or a flower or, um, just trying to make the presentation look nice. So you can definitely see that influence as well. Um, incredibly hardworking people. Their history in South Africa, famous, I said last, uh, earlier, um, it's unrecognized. It should be spoken about a little bit more in South Africa. We're talking to Elsha Erasmus. She runs Cape Town Culinary Tours. Elsha, uh, South Africa is a relatively young country when it comes to democracy. It's only been, mm-hmm. what, 30 years or something. Talk about the progress that has been made in South Africa since apartheid. I think now even there's some quite fun things to see in Cape Town. Not fun, but also memorials. You go to Century City, there is the the Follow Me to Freedom uh, statues that were put up at Century City, which is a mall area. And it's basically all the our heroes and um, Nobel Peace Prize winners statues that was pulled up. And then also the little story that they tell of what every person had as an influence in South Africa. After 1994, me still being very, very young, um, the younger generation didn't feel it as hard. But I feel like the older generation was the ones that could tell the story properly. But what we read and what we learn as tour guides um, and what we can see within the city is we have no idea what it was like because none of that is there anymore. It's the best mm. way I can describe it. It's like we don't see it. Um, so what it must have been like must have been absolutely awful because it was a complete change in South Africa. It was something that had to happen instantaneously. Um, It influenced every home. Uh, Communities were shifted. I mean, I'm sure you read about District 6 when you um, read about Cape Town, that it's a museum that must be visited while you're here to fully understand what really happened as as soon as, um, you know, certain cultures were moved out of certain suburbs. And then when 1994 uh, came along, when Nelson Mandela became president, all these barriers and stereotypes were broken. So there was a massive shift, not just in people's minds, but in the cultures and the communities, how people moved around in the city. So I think being so young, I mean, it sounds like yesterday, 1994 is literally... um, a small bit of history away, you know, it's not that long ago. So it is for some quite difficult to understand how did we come from that to this in such a short time. Um, but it is remarkable to see when you're here. But we need to talk about what happened then as well, not forget about it. Like it's still very, very much raw and important to talk about. So after all of this heavy history and museums and stuff, I think it's time for a drink. Where where would be a good place? Tell me about craft beer in Cape Town and where would be a good place for us Mm -hmm. to uh, have a nice beer, a nice cold beer in Cape Town? Especially on our cultural notes, there's something called Nkumbuti. Nkumbuti is our traditional African beer. Um, it, you know, like a lot of dishes and drinks, we kind of thought made the world where and enjoy it because, you know, it was drank by our 
grandparents and our dads and it, why is it important and we kind of lost a little bit of it but now especially in uh, the last five years anything from craft beer coffee is coming back about and also we're trying to use our traditional methods of making beer and certain drinks so in kombuti you know it's it's a very harsh drinking beer it's really strong um but you know you can make it from sorghum which um if you go to zimbabwe just above south africa oh it's popular it's like it's everywhere so now cape town has adapted that as well we've got a beer that's called ukumba great brand it's become one of our biggest fastest growing craft brewing companies in south africa we've got cbc which is cape brewing company which is also the biggest and greenest craft brew in africa right now it's quite a big deal um we absolutely love it beer has been around for since the british colonized india because the barrels kind of fell off in cape town <laughs> so <laughs> that's where we started drinking beer uh, but oh you can go to the, the beer house which has got if i'm not mistaken 99 beers on tap um, so it's trying different craft beers, local and international. We try to also bring that in for the locals. I feel like that's also very important. Um, you can go well, to many beer houses and do tastings like you would do, I'm sure, back in the States or on a wine farm. Instead of doing a wine tasting, you do a beer tasting. Um, but oh, most of our bars are equipped with anything from four to, I would say, 12 beers on tap. You can do beer tours here. We absolutely love it. We've got um, companies like Devil's Peak, CBC, uh, Jack Black. Um, these are massive craft beer names, and oh, they're fantastic. Of course, there's the bad ones. We got the guys that make it in their bath at home. <laughs> oh, try to avoid those <laughs> as much as possible. Uh, but you never know what you might get. So it's a trial and error as we go. But we, the craft beer, not as big, I would say, as in the States. But yeah, we absolutely love it. Definitely. Gin as well. Gin is very popular. I don't know if you've read a bit about our local gins. I have, but you should talk about mm -hmm. it, uh, Elsha, because gin <laughs> is so fascinating the way that it's just exploded worldwide in England, here in the U.S., everywhere. Gin has gotten so popular. Oh, yeah. And I was I was really pleased and uh, surprised to see how big gin is in Cape Town. Tell me more about it. It's massive. This is a must try. I mean, we love gin. We did hate it. I have to say it for the majority of South African gin was not the favorite because it was always just the, you know, the flavorless, I would say, sorry if I'm trading on any toes, uh, gin and tonic. So there was just yes. nothing in it. There was maybe a cucumber slice and, you know, that's as far as it would go. It was always a it was always a grandmother's drink when I was growing up, you know, <laughs> and, and now it's become this very hip thing to, yeah. to drink these days. Oh, yeah. No, same here. And the grandmother would always smell of this tonic water and the mosquitoes <laughs> would always bite me and not her, um, which was also why we, we drank it. I mean, you go to um, Mapumalanga and you go to KwaZulu-Natal where the mosquitoes and the malaria is massive. Tonic water is used as a, a tonic, you know, it's um, what keeps mosquitoes away. So we know gin and tonics for that reason. And that's why we hate it because it's so medicinal. Um, so when the younger generation started to look at Feinbos, Feinbos is what grows um, here in uh, the Western Cape regions on the mountain ranges. Uh, it's indigenous to us, us. So we use it for rooibos tea, which is known as red bush tea for some. Um, it is caffeine free. It's got a beautiful flavor. It's, oh, it's absolutely stunning. Um, but yeah, so we've taken the feinbos, we've taken the local herbs, 
um, that grows on our mountains and we started to infuse it into our gins. So you make gin the normal way, but then we just make this massive tea bags that they basically soak into the gin for a different flavor and a color. Uh, some have different ways, like distilling it with the juniper, the juniper berries. Um, you can do that. Uh, you just get a much more potent alcohol content going, which for some is fun. Right. But um, yeah, so gin has become prettier as well. We love, we have pink tonics. I mean, we've got so many different tonics from sugar-free to green or blue or pink in color to make it look prettier. Um, we've got examples of like, I can name Inverosh because it's one of my favorites. It's a brand that dissolves uh, rum and gin. I believe they do whiskey as well. But, you know, just the color of it and just they give you these recipes that you can make um, from, you know, using bay leaves or your rosemary to garnish it up or tea bags now that, you know, come in from all the way from Tanzania. Tanzania Tea Company is also big in Cape Town. Pop it into your gin. You don't have to worry about a leaf going down your throat or something like that. <laughs> um, so we're trying to be a bit more innovative with it, but gin has become massive. In But also it's a little bit healthier. I think people, we love wine, um, but then also food allergies, people with you know allergies against sulfates or things like that. Um, there is now the option of something different that is more, uh, how can I say, applicable to, the, to their diet. So I think that's also why gin has become so popular. And I love the fact that you're using the local botanicals because this would be, you know, the herbs that you get in South Africa would be completely different than what you would get in, I don't know, London or Boston or something oh, like yeah. that. Australia. So, yeah. Definitely. So you're getting a completely different flavor and that would be a very good reason to try the gin when you visit Cape Town. But oh, definitely. For yeah. me, you know, the, the thing that I know about South Africa is the wine, because in the last, mm -hmm. I don't know, 15, 20 years, South Africa has become a major, major player when it comes to wine mm -hmm. internationally. Yeah. Is, oh, yeah. is wine consumed um, by South Africaners? Oh, so we love wine. Um, I think we were lucky that the world is only recognizing our wine on such an international scale now because we were allowed or able to drink a whole lot more of our own wines than you guys <laughs> were able to. <laughs> um, so now with you know the recognition coming in, we're becoming a lot more competition-wise popular in the world of wine. Um, but we also have a very big history when it comes to wine. I mean, when the Dutch settled here, they basically focused on uh, fruit trees and uh, vegetable gardens to be set up for the ships to come past to you know get minerals and uh, what do you call it? vitamins for the journey onwards to India. But then when certain of our governors uh, settled here, they also were very educated in agriculture. Um, Jan van Riebeek and Simon van der Staal uh, passed to governors of ours. One of the, the very first and early governors started our wine industry. Um, and that was, you know, started emerging in the early 17, late 1700s. Um, also, Napoleon drank our wine when he was exiled. Um, uh, Jane Austen, while she was writing some of her books, mentions places like Hruet Constantia, which is here oh. in Cape Town. Um, wow. It's, for example, that very farm is 334 years old this year. So it's, it's extraordinary. We are considered New World wine. But um, looking at the age of our farms, our estates, and our history, um, it is very vast. So we've got, well, it's now, I think it's 810 wine estates that you can visit here in um, South Africa. 
and they're all completely different. Just looking at location, we've got Franz Hook, we've got Stellenbosch, um, we've got Pol region, you've got Somerset West, you've got Constantia, and the list goes on. Beautiful Swartland, beautiful regions where you can, um, yeah, try very different wines. We've got anything from your Sauvignon Blanc to your Pinot Noirs. Um, we make a lot of Chenin Blanc. For those who are interested in more white wine, uh, we make a lot of Syrah or Merlot when it comes to our red wines, but our climate's changing. So our wine industry is now seeing a bit of change um, due to a bit of climate change as well. If we were in Cape Town, if we didn't have time to go to all these different wineries, is there a wine mm-hmm. bar where we can sample a variety of different wines from South Africa? Oh, hallelujah, yes. Um, <laughs> I would not survive. Um, there is always incredible people that, uh, for example, is called Open Wine. They're on Wales Street. They're also part of uh, one of our tours. The thing that I really like about them is um, they also cater for the local community. It's very difficult for us since wine has become so popular. The price has also become quite um, not just expensive, but not as accessible to every local's budget. Um, so they do wine per glass, for instance. So if you don't want to buy the whole bottle, you can just do the glass. Um, it, it sounds like a, you know, everyday normal thing, but we're talking about wines that is only sold on boutique wine estates. So you would not be able to get your hands on it because it's not in the bottle store, uh, because more than 50% of all our wines get shipped out anyways. So, you know, catering not just for the international, but also for the local. You get places like um, uh, Froggit and Funkel. They have an epic uh, wine bar, uh, Grubbenwine, great wine selection. Oh, there's so many. Um, but also, there's no real excuse to go not to go to a wine farm because Khuret Constantia Wine Valley uh, or Constantia Wine Valley is only about a 20 minutes drive from the city center. Oh, wow. Um, so you are very, very close. Yeah. Well, also, that's why agents don't tell you that kind of stuff because they don't make a lot of money driving you 20 minutes away. <laughs> they would <laughs> rather take you a lot further. Um, but yeah, so yes, definitely. There are so many places. You can do inner city wine tours. Um, we do quite a bit of them for guests where you go to wine farms that has tasting rooms available within the city. So you don't have to go all the way out to Stellenbosch or Franschhoek, um, which makes it a little bit more fun. Elsha, it's been great talking to you, and you've really whet my appetite for visiting Cape Town. Uh, tell folks how they can get in touch with you and book a tour on Cape Town Culinary Tours. Um, well, first and foremost, thank you so much, Brent, for actually inviting us and having me chat to you about Cape Town. It's really, well, we hope you come and visit and actually the guests will come and visit. Um, it's straight up and forward for us. It's Cape Town Culinary Tours. You can find us um, on Instagram, Facebook, uh, on Google. Um, you can also send me a personal email, which um, is alsha at capetownculinarytours.com. My name sounds very, very complicated. It's just E-L-S-J-E at capetownculinarytours.com. Um, yeah, send us an email, even if it's not just tour-related. If you have questions, um, brain for your visit, yes, I, I, I believe it's next month. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, <laughs> I wish. <laughs> um, yeah, please let us know. Uh, we're always happy to talk. There is, this is just a, like a smidge of what Cape Town has in store. Um, Johannesburg is just as incredible as you go more north. It's just as incredible as any country. It has something different to offer and a must 
see and visit at least once. And we'll put links to your uh, Cape Town Culinary Tours website and everything that you talked about in the show notes. So if people want to get in touch with you, it'll be easy to do. Uh, Elsha of Cape Town Culinary Tours, again, thanks for being on the show. And we look forward to visiting with you in Cape Town. Thank you. I'll tell you, Elsha's got to be one of the nicest people I've ever talked to on this podcast. And she just makes the cuisine of Cape Town so approachable. Everyone I've ever talked to who's been to South Africa has just been blown away by everything they ever experienced there. After we spoke, Elsha dropped me a note and offered listeners of the podcast a special discount for any of their tours. Just go to capetownculinarytours.com, use the offer code DEATDRINK2020 for a special 15% off any tour. I've also included the coupon code below in the show notes. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of Destination Eat Drink. Next week, We are hanging with the cool kids in Portland, Oregon for food carts, craft beer, and donuts. Destination Eat Drink is distributed by Ed Silla and the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Thanks, Ed. I'm Brent Peterson. I'll see you down the road. Join us next week for another culinary adventure on Destination Eat Drink, a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network.